Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. Happy Extra Spoopy Friday, since it is the 13th. Later in the show, a showdown between two Chianti Classicos with some classic rock mixed in. 90s music is classic rock? Yes, because we are old. (sighs) It's a wine thunderdome at Table and Vine (laughs) in West Springfield. Plus, live music Friday with an artist performing at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield tonight, Ciara Fragale. And we'll hear how one of our five colleges has met and exceeded its goals of bringing fresh, healthy, locally grown food to their 12 campus kitchens when we hear from the folks at Smith College Dining Services. But first, beginning today and for the next four Fridays, we'll highlight a series of interviews with local authors of books aimed at kids and teens. We've asked young people, interns from NEPM's Media Lab program, to conduct these interviews. The first author we're highlighting is Tiffany Jewell of Northampton. She wrote, this book is anti-racist and more recently, The Anti-Racist Kid. Like many books written about race and identity, Jewell's books have been targeted for restrictions and banning in some libraries. And while she says it's never a positive thing to have a book banned, it does draw attention to what she wrote. Here's Kiara Lee of Springfield Honors Academy talking with Northampton's Tiffany Jewell, author of The Anti-Racist Kid. I've read that you were an educator for nearly two decades, and you wanted to write this book for a long time, and that you this was more of a response to the question that children asked you during your career, right? Absolutely. So I taught... Yeah, for about two decades, mostly in um, the Montessori School of Northampton, mm-hmm. uh, working with predominantly six to nine-year-olds. And every year we would do work on identity and justice and a lot of work on the history of racism and resistance. And I got lots of questions from kids every year, including my own. I have two kids um, who are almost 12 and 7. And the book was just kind of like percolating in my head for a long time. And after I wrote this book is anti-racist, which is for like teenagers, I was like, well, let's go younger um, because there's no reason why we as older folks should kind of gatekeep information. And so it's based like the book is probably about 50 questions that have all like come from kids, like real kids, kids you like who are now your age and a little <laughs> older too. Um, but questions that I get I got in the classroom that I get from my own kids that I, as I continue to work in schools. Um, and so when I look at the questions, like I see very specific former students and kids in mind, which mm-hmm. is really sweet too. Although you are providing resources for young readers and adults to help them understand what anti-racism is, mm-hmm. can you defy in like your own words what do you determine anti-racism as yeah and it's it's a um kind of like a a definition and something that keeps growing and changing because the beautiful thing about being human is like we're dynamic and we are constantly growing and changing and so for me anti-racism is really just living in the world actively resisting racism on a daily basis you know whether it's calling out stereotypes you know if my if my kid or or somebody I know says something and I'm like whoa that's based on a stereotype and that's not true let's like rewind and and look at that to interrogating my own biases like where did this come from and then also like working and really advocating 
for just policies and laws and procedures and traditions. Um, a lot of the work I do now is still in schools, and so working with educators to change the curriculum a little bit so it meets the needs of all the students and not just some of the students. And so it's really just like that constant like action. And it looks different for everybody too, which is a really beautiful thing um, because my anti-racism is a little different from your anti-racism and a little different from my husband's anti-racism. Why do you feel like it's important for everybody to understand what it is? Yeah. Um, One of the things that I get a lot because anti-racism has the word anti in it folks are immediately like turned off a little bit and they're like whoa whoa, whoa. like we don't want to be against anything but then you look at it and you're like well you need to be against racism because it's um in the definition i use in the book it's uh, personal prejudice and bias and the misuse and abuse of power by institutions um and so when we look at kind of that definition of racism like we need to make sure that the world is equitable and just for everybody and not just like for the few who made up a lot of the laws and rules and things centuries ago, because <laughs> we are a very different world now. And so for people to understand that anti-racism is like a very positive and powerful and empowering way of being is really important, because otherwise people are just gonna be like, I don't know if I can do this. You know, like for some folks, they just see it as like a, like going out and protesting, but that's not for everybody. Or they see it as like, this very personal journey when really like anti-racism is a whole big community event too, in a way. I've noticed that the book was broken into three different sections, Mm -hmm. identity, justice, and activism. And it was a unique layout. So I wonder why did you choose this type of style? So the layout and the the sections, identity and justice and activism are really kind of, I go back to like my teacher roots. And I learned about a framework called anti-bias education, which was created in like the 1980s by Louise Durbin Sparks, Julie Olson Edwards, and a bunch of other folks. And it was a framework for teaching really young kids, like like preschool age. And um, I used it when I, I was a preschool teacher. I taught young toddlers when I was in my 20s. And a lot of it is goals. Like we want children to know who they are and to love themselves. And like, you can't really argue with that. Like, why wouldn't we want every child to love themselves? And so I took kind of those goals and looked at how it could relate to this book. And it turned out like, when we have identity, like we're doing the work of understanding who we are. And if we don't know who we are, then we can't really move into the place of working with justice. And so once you know who you are and you know who the people around you are and you've like good and solid on all that, then we can move into like understanding how the world is just and fair or unjust and unfair. And from there, then we can take action and we can take action in different ways. Um, and in the book, like some of the things I share, like, you know, you can like write your senator and congressperson or you can start a club and like get to know other kids who have the same feelings about whatever it is that you're experiencing to like advocating for better curriculums in schools that that meet everybody's needs what would you want readers to take away from this book Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> i want so th- i wrote this book for young folks in particular because when i was young and like witnessed and experienced racism at different levels I knew what it was but I didn't know how to talk about it I would go home and tell my mom like this thing happened today but I didn't have the language to be like that was really unfair and unjust and so 
The book, I wrote it really wanting to share all of the things I've learned with young folks so they don't have to wait until they're adults <laughs> to be like, oh, this is how I need to change things or this is like, this actually isn't okay. And so my hope is that for young readers, they'll feel more confident in talking and experiencing the world around them. And then for the adult readers, I really want them to trust that kids can do this work too. And that there's no reason why we as adults should be like, yo, you're too young for this because you're never too young (laughs) to be an anti-racist person. Um, One of my questions is, what was the most challenging thing that you had to overcome while writing this? Oh, (sighs) there are a lot of like challenges in writing. And for me, um, writing is very different from working in the classroom because working Mm. in the classroom, I was with kids all the time and I had co-workers in other classrooms and writing can be a very solitary lonely thing and I am not always good at like managing my time and I get distracted really easily (laughs) so that like just kind of creating a set schedule and finding like writing partners whether it's virtually or like going to like the coffee shop or the library to write so I wasn't like just sitting in my room writing all alone that was probably the hardest thing for me the questions and the answers kind of came really easily with this book, which was really nice, but it's kind of like the, how do I get <laughs> to the point of writing it? Do you have any projects that you are working towards that you'd like to share with us? Oh, yes. I have a lot of projects in the works. Some I'm not allowed to talk about, um, but I am allowed to talk about, I have a book coming out in January, and it's mm-hmm. called Everything I Learned About Racism I Learned in School. And it's one I've been pretty much writing my whole life, right? Because I've been in school forever. But it is part memoir. So I tell stories about my own schooling growing up in Syracuse, New York in the 1980s and 90s. And then it also includes um, stories from other authors and educators. So Joanna Ho, who wrote Isaac Kiss in the Corner, and Min Lei, and Randy Rebai, like a bunch of some of my favorite authors. They said yes, and they contribute Um, stories and poems to it and then it's also just a book that looks at different aspects of schooling that maybe we don't understand as racist or anti-racist or whatnot but to understand that you know we don't need to always do things the way they've always been done and that we can create a beautiful vision for school that is more just and equitable so I'm really excited about that book and then I'm also working on some picture books for kids, which is really exciting because I've never done picture books before, and they require a lot less words than the (laughs) books for teens, so I'm excited about that, too. I'll share it more when I'm allowed to. (laughs) (laughs) Tiffany Jewell is the author of The Anti-Racist Kid, a book about identity, justice, and activism. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This was was amazing. (laughs) It's a pleasure to have you. This is a production of the NEPM Media Lab. Kiara Lee of Springfield Honors Academy and NEPM's Media Lab talking with Northampton's Tiffany Jewell, author of The Anti-Racist Kid. Inspired bed choice. Thank you. Next week, Maggie Kosmierski talks with Michael Connolly Sr., author of Moo Lou and Kayla Do Lemonade. Later in the show, Live Music Friday with Sierra Fragale, a local hero, spotlight on Smith College Dining Services and their effort to provide their students with global flavors and local ingredients. Up next, a Chianti Classico Battle Royale in the Wine Thunderdome at Table and Vine. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. 
That's how you know you're a gross wine snob when you're like, can you show me that really gross thing so I can smell it? Back in the wine Thunderdome at Table and Vine in West Springfield, where we will be hamburger judges, Kalise and I, this coming Thursday, alongside the mayor of West Springfield. What have you roped us into, Michael Quinlan, the ambassador for Table and Vine? This was an idea that was presented to us by Sutter Home, and they're like, they do this huge burger contest, like the winner. Because everything they do is huge. Right, they get, contestants get flown to California to make it, there's this panel of judges, and then the winner gets like $20,000 or something, it's like a big thing. Whoa. And they're like, well, let's do a local one, we're not giving away $20,000. Cause I would but, be like, I'm in. <laughs> right. Too late, deadline's passed for submission. And basically like our customers have sent, sent recipes in, Michael and I have been going through the recipes, picking out the ones that we find the most compelling. And Bill Collins from Center Square Grill is going to come and make the burgers. And you fine folks are going to tell us who wins a new gas grill from our friends at Sutter Home. People can come and attend this still though, even they can't make the burger or what? I'm not sure about that uh, because there's only so many burgers that, you know, we're on a budget. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're on a Sutter Home budget though. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's wines to be drunk and that is what we're doing here. We don't, we don't only judge burgers. We judge wines. Very judgy. And joining us for the first time here at Table and Vine, but not for the first time drinking wine with me on the radio, is Mike Brunel. It's Mike and Mike, or Michael and Michael. Some people have two turntables and a microphone. We have zero turntables. Two mics enter, one mic leaves. And two, yeah, we're going to make you guys fight. Close the door. I affectionately called you many years ago on my radio show, Vino Rojo, because you're a redhead and, uh, you know, red wine, blah, blah, blah. Hola. Hola. Como estas? <laughs> Welcome back to being on the radio with me. I missed you. I'm so happy to be back. I, I, I feel so jealous when Michael gets to do these because they're so entertaining. I'm glad just to be a part of it this time. Michael nice. was here for a meeting this morning and he's like, uh, oh, I, I should go. And then we were just like talking and talking. He's like, oh, maybe I'll still be here. Oh, I, was like, I, I have been stretching this out. <laughs> You're one of the big bosses, so you can do whatever you want. You like us. You really like us. Right. You like me. What are we drinking today, Michael Quinlan? So today is our two Chianti Classicos. They have so much in common, obviously, because they're two wines from the same sub-region of Chianti, right? This is the heart of the Chianti Appalachian, and eventually people outside of it petition the government to widen the Appalachian, and it becomes Chianti. And then all of a sudden the people that are, were in the original Appalachian petition the government and say, hey, we were here first. Like, okay, you're the Classico. You're the classic Chianti, right? So it's the, the most important sub-zone of Chianti. So Chiantic circles. Yeah, exactly. Circles within circles. That's right, and that's actually true. Because even in Chianti Classico, there's seven sub-regions, sub-zones of that. I mean, it's unbelievable. But what we have here are two Chiantis, both 90% Sangiovese. The minimum is 80%. You have to use 80% Sangiovese. The other 20% can be anything from the approved list of, of varieties. The list of varieties would go way down your arm. You know, it's a huge list. So you can use almost anything. One of them is made with only indigenous Tuscan varieties. And one of them has Merlot in it. Mm -hmm. So the imported French oh, variety. That explains the drastic difference in color between these it's two. It's amazing. The wine that's darker is actually older too. The age of that wine hasn't faded the color at all because it has the strength of Merlot, and then the, the more traditional one is red. Yeah, we've got like a burgundy-ish color one, and the, the one with the Merlot in it is like deep. Yeah, inky. So, uh, the first wine is the more traditional one, Baria Acotobono, one of my favorite wineries. I had the chance to visit them in September of 2022. You know, we've been buying these wines and selling them. I've been here a long time, and they've been here almost every day that I've been here. Mm. Uh, I love these wines. 90% Sangiovese, the 10% blend is Canaiolo, Colorino, and Chilajolo. 
yeah. know, Tuscany, Tuscany great, yeah, indigenous fancy French stuff getting out. Yeah, of that's right. Why do you think I have this outrageous accent, you silly king? Sangiovese is high in acidity, right? It's naturally high in acidity. You know, these wines, Classico is blessed with hills, so you have higher elevation vineyards, so you kind of preserve acidity here. And this wine is oh, just so splendid. It smells very Italian right away, which to me is always like leather and yeah. Yeah, cherry. Velvet, like the fabric velvet. Something weird about Bittersweet Symphony happening in the background while this is happening here. Why does the wine taste bittersweet? Got a little bit of that verve to it. Don't stick that in my face after saying those two things together, back to back. Vino Rojo, thoughts on the Chianti Classico here? I think it, it is amazingly classic. I think it's a pretty easy thing to say because we know that it's the classic one, but it is all it of classical that. right on it. It's classico, but it has that earthiness that like you'd mentioned, the leatheriness. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if the Merlot just doesn't kind of overwhelm the Sangiovese aspect of it. But I always say it's that, that astringency of Chianti in a, in a nice way where it is. It's bright is a great way to describe it. It's like a million different people from one day to the next. Oh my God. <laughs> But this is why this goes with tomato, right? Tomato mm -hmm. sauce is high-pitched acidity as well, but also has that sweetness of, of fruit too. So uh, sangiovese and tomatoes are like meant for each other. Put a little bit of, put a tiny bit of maple syrup or some sort of sugary thing in your sauce. Yes. Tiny bit. Just a little Cut bit. Cut it just a little bit. Like, Especially if you're using fresh tomatoes because fresh tomatoes vary in acidity. So you're looking for something to balance it out a little bit. Like a tiny little bit of vinegar and a tiny little bit of sweetener evens that right out. Wine one, Badia, Colte Buono, Chianti Classico, all indigenous Italian grapes, but mostly Sangiovese. Wine number two. Wine number two, Canonica a Ceretto, Chianti Classico. This is 90% Sangiovese, as we mentioned before, 10% Merlot. The winemaker at this winery, it's a, it's a family-owned winery, but the winemaker's not in the family's hired, and it's a guy that's very famous for his talents using Merlot across all of Italy. He's like a consulting winemaker. His father was Franco Bernabe, who also was like a Merlot legend. Mm -hmm. in the warmer parts of Italy. Merlot got a bad rap from the movie Sideways. They want to drink Merlot, we're drinking Merlot. Oh no, if anybody orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I am not drinking any Merlot! Okay, okay, <laughs> relax, Miles. If you read the book Sideways, I think you would understand a little bit more about why. It had nothing to do with the quality of Merlot. It had everything to do with the main character's association with Merlot and his wife. Don't think when you hear Merlot that it's bad because you watched this movie from the, what was it, the early aughts? Early aughts. I always remember when, when that movie happened because Merlot was, a, it was always a good selling section for us and we used to stock the Merlot section like two or three times a week. You'd have to run down it and pull a few cases to fill up the section. And the Pinot Noir section you'd do like maybe once a week and then all of a sudden it's, they swapped. Like the Pinot Noir started selling, you were like, oh my gosh, we're stocking Pinot Noir every day and Merlot like once a week. Because of sideways. Because yeah. If you want to yell at Paul Giamatti about that, he'll be at Mass Mocha recording a podcast this weekend. <laughs> he also true. filmed a movie in Deerfield that comes out pretty soon that looks really good too. So, Paul Giamatti, if you happen to be listening to the Fabulous 413, thanks for ruining Merlot for the entire industry. Hopefully his Uber driver has the right radio station on. So, in the area of Chianti, mm -hmm. Tuscany, sometimes people break the rules of Chianti and put all sorts of things, especially other French grapes in, like Merlot, and they call it a super Tuscan. Super.
is this considered a Super Tuscan because it's got Merlot in it? No. So pre-1996, there were very strict laws about Chianti, like you had to include certain things like white wine uh, in Chianti. And then over time, the producers, like they were bucking that trend and telling the government, fine, I won't use the term Chianti on my label. I'm going to make my own wine and I'll, I won't put an appellation on it. And I'm even going to charge more for it. Right. And they were like, it doesn't even have an appellation. How can you charge more for it? Because it's a Super Tuscan. <laughs> And, but this doesn't qualify because they're following the rules of the Appalachian. The rules just happen to now since since like 2006, white wine is outlawed and outlawed. I don't. They don't. You, you can't put white wine in Chianti anymore. Huh. It's against the rules. And now Merlot is permitted. But this one is mostly Sangiovese, 90%, yeah. but also Merlot. This has actually been our number one selling Chianti Classico customers that have, buy, have bought this one. They come back to buy it again and again because I think we all kind of have a, a lean towards wanting more traditional things. We kind of like this classic style, but this wine's really juicy and pretty easy to drink. The Merlot makes it really soft. It's not nearly as acidic as the first one. Totally. Not as leathery, not as earthy. And the thing that Merlot brings so many times in wine to me is blueberry, and that yes. definitely yeah. is happening yes. here. Vino Rojo, thoughts on the Merlot Chianti Classico here? It's just plush, like yeah. really easy, soft. Soft drinking. A plush like the Stone Temple Pilots song from the 90s. This is a song called Plush. Are we going to full 90s playlist here? I was hoping you'd pick up on that. And then we got Alanis in the background now. Alanis, misunderstanding how irony works. Who would have thought? It figures. <laughs> anyway, back to what you think of the wine, Vino Rojo. Are I think... you glad you stayed for this? <laughs> he's, used, he's used to this. He's old school. He had, to deal, he had to deal with this when there was a woman who really hated when I would go off topic like that. And his entire financial future was, was dependent upon this going well. There was one time that we were doing it in the wine bunker and you and I went off the rails together and she was furious. <laughs> I mean, just I just gave her. us the gave us the look. You know? I love your just sort of natural scolding nature, right? <laughs> like just always kind of looking down her nose at you like, okay. Yeah, because Michael Quinlan also worked for my wine mother at State Street years and years did. ago. I did, I did a long time yeah. ago. She hated everybody but loved you at the same time. It was really an amazing combination of that's a, humanity. That's a great skill to be able to give people. To be like, yes, I love you, but knock it off. Yeah. Maybe that's what you think of when you're smelling the wine. However, the average person takes that as an offensive smell or taste. You really Those people shouldn't. are lying to themselves. The best kind of constant terror. Like these are the traits that every oldest child learns. One time I walked into the wine bunker and without saying anything, she was like, I'm gonna tell your wife what you did. And I'm like, what? And she wouldn't tell me. And it turned out that I didn't properly wash the glasses from the last time I was there, but she lorded it over me the whole time we were down there. And I was like, this is an, this is epic. And she was running, the best. Running through his whole week. Like, what could I have possibly done? Okay. I feel okay. like, like it, this is a little more tannic than the other one. Um, like, that one's got like some, some acid to, to bring yeah. the peak, but the tannins in this one are what, what spread, what hang out a little bit more. The, the tannins in this give it a little bit more structure so it's not all like peaky and plushy. The acid kind of hits you more in like the back, mm -hmm. but the Merlot and the tannin, your, the tannin has that grippiness. It's yeah, just kind of right, grabbing right. you in the, in the front of the mouth. Yeah, tannins are, have been described to me as sweaters on your teeth and tongue. Mm -hmm. And sure. I think that's a good way to, yeah. you yeah. definitely feel that. You get it at the bottom of a cup of tea a lot too, right? Mm -hmm. There's that little drying nature to your, to your tongue and your teeth. And, and it's, I mean, but it's natural and grape skins also like tea leaves. Right. And so it's something that everybody knows what it feels like from drinking one of those two things, right? right? But at the same time, it's like, when you start talking about it, people a lot of times are like, I don't really know what that means exactly. Yeah. Also, if you think you are allergic to tannins and, and red wine, but drink tea, you're probably wrong. Yes. Hate to tell you. It happens in apples too. Like you get it in um, certain like more classic styles of ciders. Are these about the same price? They are. Yeah. They are. 
They're both under. He did it again. Yeah. You're not supposed to say that. You're not supposed to say prices on the radio. Okay. It's like, They're both. I don't know who's on the twenty. Two Hamilton. Hamilton. Oh, it's it's Tubman. Future Tubman. We yeah. call it. Yeah. yeah They're yeah. gonna take Jackson yeah. off. They're not doing They're it fast shit. enough. I know. Right? right? Come on, We've been told about this for a long time. Right? right. Two Michaels enter. Yeah, One Michael leaves. I'm not gonna <laughs> eat you, Michael Quinlan. I mean, tis the it's, season. It's, it's spooky month. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. So we've got the two wines enter, the traditional Chianti Classico and the more modern with the Merlot Chianti Classico. The Badia de Cote de Buono, which is the traditional. Ab Abbey of the Good Harvest. There we go. And what is it? Canonica de Cereto. Yeah. What does that one mean? I don't know. I don't know either. I'm Italian and I don't even know. I don't know. I don't Italian. I think it's like, <laughs> it, it translates to, it's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. It's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. Everyone on air can hear my head shaking. Yep. Don't give me the runaround, by the way. <laughs> That's what's happening right now. It's, it's all 90s all the time here at Table and Vine. I do love the 90s. It's a simpler time. I had no bills. Who wants to vote first? We're gonna make the new guy do it. Michael Brunel, Vino Rojo. Is it like a one-word answer? Do you just say? No, you can explain your vote. This isn't like the MCAS, but if you don't pass, you don't graduate. Traditional. Vino Rojo goes traditional. <laughs> Michael Quinlan. Traditional. Khalees Smith. Also traditional. There's just this softness to it that's real nice. So my vote doesn't matter. I'm going with Ralph Nader. Only Al Gore can really be Al Gore. Just, wow. Just to prove a point. It's like, wow. anytime you vote not, in Massachusetts. No, not now though. Not it's, now. <laughs> the traditional wins automatically. Ralph Nader. <laughs> I'm gonna vote for the Chianti Why are you drinking for... Ralph Nader? I know I said a thing about it being spooky month. But like, I didn't expect- if this guy says Ross Perot. <laughs> I could have said Ross Perot. That would be unsafe at any speed. I'm going to vote with the, uh, the modern, which is very odd for me. I wouldn't have normally thought that, but I do love the blueberry aspect of it. The more traditional classic oak, I think in this particular instance, really, really wants food. And because we don't have food yes. and we're drinking the Merlot, it softens it just that little bit. The blueberry thing I loved and even the tanniny thing I kind of loved too. Plus it's the so much darker in color. So I'm the outlier. You are. But the traditional wins. Dun, dun, dun. And uh, I guess Tradition. you're- Tradition! Tradition! You might be invited or not invited to this thing on Thursday that Khalees and I are judging about hamburgers with the mayor of West Springfield. That's right. Three burgers enter, one burger leaves. <laughs> Coming up, Live Music Friday with Ciara Fergale, playing at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield tonight. Up next, one of our five colleges knocking their goals of bringing fresh, healthy local food to their campus out of the park. A local hero spotlight on Smith College Dining Services. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Time for our local hero. Take two. <laughs> <laughs> We're including that in the edit. Oh, you know it. This is our first radio Time for our local hero spotlight with Phil Corman from CISA, the local hero folks, and Smith College Dining's Andy Cox, who is the executive director of Auxiliary Services, as well as Herman Alvarado, the culinary director. It just so happens that it is school lunch week. Congressman McGovern, who I spoke to yesterday about it, introduced some legislation to try to get more fresh, healthy food into mostly public school uh, and grade school, high school students. But Smith, 
private school in Northampton, uh, has been doing this for how long? You kind of started this program, right? Uh, I picked up where the last director left off. Uh I think it was um, in 2015, the students were really advocating for more local food in the campus, and we did not. We were at about 9% of our food was coming locally, which was above the national average, right? So I think it was 3% as your national college. And they uh, encouraged the president at the time, we have a new president now, um, President McCartney, to sign a commitment to be at 20% by 2020. We had a goal set, and so we were working towards that, and we increased to 13, then 19, and then we got 24, 26, hit 30. So yeah, we've continued to grow. And it continues to grow with, I'm assuming, the relatively new culinary director, Herman Alvarado. How long have you been the culinary director there? So I started in January. Uh, I've been at Smith for 10 years now. And prior to this role, I was a chef, a floater chef, which means I was at all the major events. I helped open up our sushi house at Smith. And overall, just kind of wherever they needed me, I'd pop in and do whatever was needed. So when I think about colleges, I think about young folks coming for the first time, leaving home, and they come to a new place, they're semi on their own, and all the comfort food is gone from home. Though they're not going to tell their parents that. So I'm kind of curious, like, how does Smith sort of welcome people in with food and how's food used for all that? What's great about Smith is we have so many options. Unlike other schools, we have 10 kitchens, you know, and we're able to provide um, a gluten-free house. Uh, we have a vegan vegetarian house. When you say house, it's, you know, there's a kind of a main dining area, but then yeah. the different residences for the different students have their own kitchens, un- unique kitchens with a, right. a, with a different vibe. But all the students can go to whatever house makes that, sense to them, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's like mini restaurants all over campus, which yes. is kind of yes. fun. Yeah. And then this year we started, a, we were doing a stir fry station where students could do a DUI stir fries. Uh-huh. So we expanded that concept into every week we switch it up. So we'll have like a broth bowl, we'll have a grain bowl. And then we'll have a pasta. And each of those concepts, they're DIY. So it's a great learning opportunity for students to make their own food and also to kind of make it the way they want it. It's hard when you're providing for so many students to customize it. So they're able to do that. With uh, the pop-ups that you do, are any of them instructional, like classes that students can take in order to learn how to make better food? Maybe. I mean, Julia Child went there, right? So you got to <laughs> yep. assume that people know how to cook. <laughs> yes, what she learned afterwards. Oh, yeah. So far, it's been more of, you know, us coming up with these uh, menus and then uh, showcasing them. Basically, we provide all these vegetables and proteins and then we are able to say, hey, you can make this dish if you combine these three ingredients. And then we have a chef there that helps uh, you know, any student that needs assistance. We've also partnered with the wellness department to do mm-hmm. cooking classes. We did it for three years up until the pandemic. I think it's coming back this year yep. too, right? So they're gonna- cool. We're communicating with them, possibly doing like a demonstration with pizzas, and then they can you know, kind of create their own pizzas and have a discussion. So and, let us know when yeah, that happens, because All we right. do a thing called Pizza Quest, and yeah. we'll just come in and judge. We'll, we'll judge, them <laughs> har- judge them harshly. Are there like newsletters? or bulletins that go out to all the students so everybody knows what house what has what during the week and you can just kind of plan out where you're go- map out where you're going <laughs> for each meal so we do um, online we have our menus trying to make sure that because we are so decentralized that we provide menus that are equally popular around campus that way not one house gets hit um, and that's a challenge that we have and that's been a major uh, part of my job it's being able to uh, figure out menus that work for everybody, including the students and the kitchen staff. 
We're speaking with Herman Alvarado, the culinary director at Smith College, as well as Andy Cox, the executive director of Auxiliary Services. They're formerly the uh, culinary director at Smith College and Phil Corman from CISA, the local hero folks. We heard a little bit about what Andy did in his tenure there to try to raise the amount of local food that was coming to Smith College campus above and beyond the goal set. What's your vision? I was here before Andy was here. Do you have to remind him of that? <laughs> yes. I've been here way longer than you, Andy. So it's a just, great foundation to walk into. I've been. It's, I've seen the progression since he's been our director, um, where he did bring in all these local foods, and for us, it's been great because it's a sense of pride. And also, we know that the food tastes better. We know that there's more nutrition in it. And also that we are helping our community. That alone, it's a great impact to us. And so I've seen that change progress every year. So I want to work with Andy to continue that trend. My focus has been on the food and being able to provide plant-based options, which is trending, uh, but as well as keeping it authentic when we bring in global cuisines. You know, and with that, you know, it's incorporating all these local products wherever we can find. If we're able to get it local, that would be the ideal place we'd like to move forward. Are there ingredients that you're constantly on the search for? And on the flip side of that, are there farms that approach you knowing that they have something you may have been looking for that you haven't had? I've been surprised for the most part how much is available around here. You know, for a lot of like Latino cuisine, uh, we're able to get dry chilies that you would use for any of our soups or stocks or sauces, as well as uh, some of the condiments. Uh, Every year we have this program called International Students Day, where a lot of the uh, organizations from Smith College bring in recipes from home, and then they try to replicate it. And so we're working on that next year. But part of that challenge is there's these ingredients that we've never heard of or seen before. Yeah. And so when we can, we try and find those locally. But it is it is a challenge. And so sometimes we might have to uh, change a recipe to use a local ingredient and still have uh, those flavors in there. Is it difficult as a college feeding how many people about a day? Uh, 2,500. 2,500 people a day to source from a variety of local farms. How does it work? Do they deliver it to Smith? Do you send a truck out that goes and hits all the farms? Like Each you know? individual student has to go to the farm themselves. Yes. That is, yeah. That's, that's a, a lot really on top of yeah. academics to do. Yeah. <laughs> Andy Cox is the executive director of Auxiliary Services at Smith. Yeah, so we, we work directly with a number of farms, but we also use aggregators. So Marty's Local and Deerfield mm-hmm will aggregate for us. An example is um, Kitchen Garden. So when we buy sriracha, they're going to deliver that direct, like cases at a time. Yep, nice. I'm wearing a Kitchen, kitchen Garden farm under my absolutely <laughs> insane looking sweater that has two leopards on it. But yes, I love that farm. Right, and, but if we're getting sriracha. And they were actually doing bulk pack salsa for us ah, as well. Excellent salsa too, by the way. available retail, yeah. but they make gallon, gallons of it too. But if we're buying fresh produce, we're going to aggregate that through Marty's and they'll be able to go to all the different houses, saves times for the farmer not having to make 10 different stops yeah. at every one of the different houses. And I'm imagining because you, how many chefs do you work with, Herman? I have uh, 25 chefs. Yeah, so that yeah. you all don't have time to cook for 2,500 people with 25 chefs and then go get this stuff so it all just comes right to you and you and you work with what comes in? Yep. Yeah. So I know, Herman, that uh, you shared with me previously that you actually started your one of your major work-life careers originally was graphic design. How do you go from graphic designer to cooking for 2,500 people? As a child, you know, art was just 
what I did, it was how I defined myself, you know, working with my hands, sculpting. So, you know, growing up, that's where I thought I would end up. So I went to school, but to pay for school, I had to work at a restaurant. I started off over at Esalon Cafe. Oh, yeah. I was uh, their first employee that they hired. Oh, cool. On Route 9. <laughs> yep, yep. And so um, what happened is just like food is art. To be honest, you're working with your hands. It's creativity. I really enjoyed doing it. I was really good at it. And I moved up the ranks, you know, the, the hard way, but I, I felt like I got a great perspective what food, you know, is. It's comfort, it's, you know, nutrition, it's creativity. And a lot of it is just teamwork in the kitchen. That was probably the best part of working in kitchens, to be honest. You know, it's a hard job. You know, 120 degrees, poaching eggs or on the stove. And you got to have a great team. Poaching like eight tables worth of eggs. Yeah. I think I did about uh, 28 poached eggs all at once. Yeah. And that was my, the record at that point. Yeah. <laughs> I don't miss breakfast service. It's the easiest and yet the hardest somehow at the same time. Every kitchen is a pirate crew. Your plating must be amazing. Well, you know, after I left Esalon, I went over to California mm. and I worked at a high-end restaurant with some chefs that worked at Michelin Stars. They were very strict on plating and all the things have to be exactly perfectly cut. If not, I would have to start all over again. You know, when I finished my shift, my chef coat had to be spotless, white. You know, it was a whole different vibe and mentality going there. So when I moved back here to Massachusetts, um, I wasn't able to find a restaurant that was at that level. And my friend worked at Smith College, and so he introduced me to it. And honestly, it's been one of the best moves I've ever made. I've been exposed to so many different cuisines that I wouldn't have at you know, at those restaurants. I've been able to uh, work on my baking, uh, sushi skills, you know, a little bit of everything. It's been great. Yeah, speaking of baking, you uh, acknowledged there is something, some treat that you have brought here. I did, What did yes. you What did you bring, Herman? So this is a carrot cake that I want to give a little shout-out and credit to our Gillette crew. It's a, so it's a carrots from um, Outlook and then flour from Ground Up and then a little bit of maple in our cream cheese from... Um, North Hadley Sugar North Shack. North Sugar Shack. Yeah, and nice. It's, it's delicious, and it's just all the flavors come out. Well, I think I, we can. Really yeah, yeah, come on. Okay. The uh, important yeah, question good. here is raisins. There's Are there no raisins? raisins. Yes! <laughs> that's the right answer. <laughs> I'm also not a fan of raisins and carrot cake. I have to fight with my partner about this. They'll get raisin bread and then put raisins on top of the raisin bread no. just to spite me. Yeah. <laughs> she will probably add something unnecessary like raisins. I know, right? We're speaking with Andy Cox, the executive director of auxiliary services at Smith, and Herman Alvarado, the culinary director at Smith, who were about to eat their carrot cake. But if, let's say, uh, we were students at Smith, what would be something that is exciting on the menu today? Oh, so that's actually a great question. Today happens to be a special event. Uh, so we're celebrating uh, Hispanic Heritage Month. Yeah. So we're, uh, it's a pop-up, you know. We kind of have to create pop-ups so that all the students don't come into uh, these two kitchens. Um, so, <laughs> but we're competing with salmon. So, it, uh, so you have salmon in one house, but then the pop, the Hispanic Heritage Month pop-ups yeah, so in salmon, another? Okay, I cool. Say it's, that's uh, a, 
be a couple heads. You know, yeah. you, that, that's good. Make these decisions hard for yeah. them. <laughs> but uh, it's great. We I sat down with the last organization, and they gave me a spreadsheet of a bunch of dishes that they had came up with and would love to, you know, see. So uh, we picked and chose ones that made sense for the menu for, uh, you know, our kitchen. So we have a couple different drinks, horchata. Nice. We have uh, Moritz Soñando, a Dominican drink. Mm-hmm. And uh, cantaloupe fresco. And then for our entree is pernil, Puerto Rican. Yeah, pernil. Uh, right there with some arroz con gandulas, uh, fried yuca, and some like nice zucchini that we uh, roast with a little bit of chili and topical hita. So it should be a special event. My Very wife good. works in the Spanish department at Smith, so she's going to have to get me a to-go container or something <laughs> like that. With the amount of local produce that you get in, has it been hard this year maintaining that level of produce that you usually receive? Because of all the flooding and things that went on this year. I would say, our, so our single largest farm partner is Outlook, mm-hmm. and they're sort of perched up on a hill. And in West Hampton, right? In right. West Hampton. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've been buying for over 60 years, spend almost $100,000 a year just with them. Wow. And they will aggregate for us, too, sometimes. So they'll go mm-hmm. to Joe Sikowski and if they don't have it. So I don't know that we have felt the impact as much from that. We'll also use Marty's a lot. So they'll sort of switch for us. A lot of our direct partners are more shelf-stable. So we buy, like, flour from ground up and mm-hmm. dairy, maple syrup, and, and even meat, right? So we use, like, beef from Poplar Hill Farm. So that's less impacted by weather events. And Andy, over time, I think you've had to think about the infrastructure at Smith College in order to source more locally. Can you just share a little bit about how you've done that? Sure. Yeah. So we we actually got a grant from the Henry P. Kendall Foundation, uh, the New England Food Vision Prize. So we aggregated with a few other colleges to do an RFP for meat. So So we did a request for proposal, sent it out to farmers saying, what price do you need to hit if you were to sell to institutions, if we guaranteed a volume and we paid for the processing ourselves because we need special processing? Like we don't want a four pack of hamburgers. We need bulk. Uh, We don't want individual steaks. We want roast. So we worked with Westfield State and Amherst and Mount Holyoke to sort of go to farm and say, you tell us the price, we'll take care of the rest. And we worked with Adams Farm and now um, New England Meatpacking, Connecticut, to do all the processing. And so we took, you said, you just drop it off and tell us your price. And we were able to just contract large whole animal purchases through that. But as part of the grant, we needed a big place to store this. So we got two trailer freezers installed. We got a big smoker so we could like make wow. our bacon and ham nice. hocks. And, yes. um, and then a refrigerated van to sort of distribute amongst ourselves. And we were getting all this meat delivered right when the pandemic hit and we sent all of our students home. So, <laughs> Here, take a steak. <laughs> stay good on the plane. Uh, but we, we held that commitment for all of our farmers and our farmers were so appreciative that they had an outlet. This was before the shortage in meat and mm. that followed in the supply chain issues. So, but we were grateful to have all of that especially since now all of it's slaughtered halal as well, which yeah. can be literally more... was going to be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was so difficult to get halal meat and we were just swimming in it. It was great. Uh-huh. Not literally. I think that would they can then make it <laughs> not, not halal, halal. <laughs> anymore. <laughs> but it's been a great source for, because we run now run two kitchens that are halal. That's amazing. It's a, an exciting experience. And even if you're not a student, you can go to these kitchens, right? Not all of them or not anymore. Tell I me, mean, Andy Cox. They're, they're in residential oh, wait, houses. Wait. You need to be on a board but, plan. But there is like, a centralized kitchen that I've had lunch at several times. Yeah, the Campus Center Cafe. So we run two retail shops. Yeah, okay. Um, that also, yeah, are buying the same products, have access to the same vendors. So yeah, yeah the Campus Center Cafe, and we run a 
little cafe in Nielsen, the new uh, library. It's called Compass Cafe. Oh, nice. And that is where Herman was prior to that. They offer sushi every day as well as some like poke bowls and some other. So either make friends with a smithy or go to these two open places. That yeah. I mean, make friends public. with smithies. You yeah. need to know people yeah, younger definitely. than you anyway. <laughs> should we, before we wrap this up, should we stuff our yes. face with a little bit yes, of this carrot cake? cake? Okay. And yeah. as we're doing that, Herman, I know that you were sharing with me that growing up you had uh, a lot of culinary prowess in your family. <laughs> I did, yeah. Growing up, I had five aunts and my grandmother who's turning 100 next month. Whoa. Um, I would say they're all amazing chefs. Mm. You know, So when they get together, it was always a celebration. Every Saturday, we decided to do you know a cookout to kind of raise money for our family. And so it became so popular that we'd probably get around 100 people to show up. And we had it going for about a year. So food for me, like I said, it's really always been community. You know, my uncle was a DJ, so we had music, we had food. You know, everybody knew us. We were the place to be because we were welcoming, we had food, and if you couldn't pay for it, you know, it's fine. Where was this? uh, So I grew up, I was born and raised in California. Uh And Herman, have you taken on your five aunts since you've become a chef? Uh, I have not, no, no. But um, I would say my mom does give me a call and say, hey, I, I made pozole or I made, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm there. Nice. You know, it's, and all my siblings are there. And it's just like when we were kids, you know, that's what food is about. And it's what I want to bring to Smith, you know, building that community. And when it's great, we have so many international students, you know, and so having this program like I asked, they were we're able to bring in those recipes and then possibly incorporate those into our menus. The carrot cake is oh my, delicious. Oh it's amazing. God. So nice and moist. And the, Building the community one carrot cake at a time. There we go. <laughs> I love it. Herman Alvarado, the culinary director at Smith College, and Andy Cox, the executive director of auxiliary services at Smith College, and Phil Corman from CISA, the local hero folks who gave Smith College an award a couple years ago about how committed they are to supporting local agriculture. You can find out more about all of our local heroes at buylocalfood.org. Easiest way to show somebody you care is to feed them. Mm-hmm. Up next, Live Music Friday with an artist performing at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield tonight, Ciara Fregale. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 and EPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. It's Live Music Friday, and we are joined in studio by Ciara Fregale. Ciara is an indie pop singer, songwriter, producer, and actor originally from New York's Hudson Valley, currently residing here in the 413, and says on her website, she can most likely be found at the top of mountains or at your local thrift store. <laughs> She's playing tonight at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield with Eleanor Levine and the Burning Sun, playing in studio now with Connell Mannion. Take it away.
Ciara Fregale, who's playing tonight at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield. So I've seen you play with Wallace Field, and I know that you do your own stuff, but clearly you play with other people. Like, who else do you play with? <laughs> like, I'm very fortunate to have so many, like, musical, musically talented friends who I just let peer, me peer pressure them <laughs> into, like, playing with them. I mean, you know, funny enough, like, like that's that's what happened with Wallace Field, mm-hmm. and, like, you know, Chelsea's great, and her music is amazing, and it's so fun to, like, you know, be in that band and just, like, riff in the background, you know. And I played a couple shows with my good friend Molly Pardon, um, who actually just had a record come out today. Um, pretty much I'm, like, ready and willing to, like, play <laughs> with anyone. Because I just love it. And it's such a gift. I don't know. It's such a gift when you get to be fans of your friends. I think that is a really special way to approach music, especially in especially in a scene such as, you know, the Western Mass kind of scene like everybody is there to support each other and the the scene that I came from before in the Hudson Valley you know it was like all of us were sort of like constantly collaborating and it's really nice to still be able to have that. some of that yeah and yeah. 
I was going to say, what brought you from scene to scene in Valley to Valley? Oh, yeah. Um, it was kind of like a, a mix of things, really. I mean, I I had been coming to, so I live over in North Adams, um, and I had been going there for about eight months before I actually moved there. I had, I had come up there to play a show and just met all of these amazing people and I'm kind of like a puppy without a leash, so I, I just love making friends. <laughs> like, and that and that was kind of what happened. And, you know, I just kept on getting invited back more to, like, hang out and play more shows. And then um, an opportunity came where I, I was able to apply for a grant through an amazing program called Assets for Artists that gave me, like, financial ability to move to North Adams to relocate there. And, yeah, I was, like, touring a lot, and I kind of, like, wanted a little bit of a change, you know, a new home base. And... Yeah, it's 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 now been like four years out there. So and I love Western Mass. I mean, it's it's such a great and there's a lot of crossover between the Hudson Valley and Western Mass. And each place still feels equally like home. Yeah, especially like North Adams, because the, there's more transients between, I think, West uh, Eastern New York. That's the east of New York. Yeah. It's west of Massachusetts, yes. east of New York. Um, is this a residency? Because you have another show at Hawks and Reed coming up. <laughs> In, like, a week. I do, yeah. That was kind of an accident. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of an accident. Like, my um, my my good friend who's who's doing uh, booking for The Burning Sun, who are also my, you know, good friends from Burlington, um, they reached out to me about doing a Western Mass show. And I was like, oh, we could try, we could try Hawks and Reed. And then uh, Wallace Field, which is the other band that I play in, uh, you know, Chelsea was like, yeah, we're going to do a headline show. Do you want to open? And I was like... Yeah, sure. Like it, it just became this, you know, sort of like happy accident. So, but I like that. Let's call it a Hawks and Reed residency, the Sierra Fergale Hawks and Reed residency. There we go. Yeah, yeah. I've played with the Burning Sun before. Actually, it was like they're really great. And um, it was actually a bill where my band was the only band without Sun in the title, so we felt really left out. But that's. You play with like Sun Parade too? No, no, no. It was some other some other Sun band. I'll have to go look at yeah. like our posts on Facebook to figure out what it was because I do not remember any I remember Burning Sun because they were really awesome yeah, and then and just like, I don't remember the other band yeah. <laughs> sorry other band from UMass <laughs> um, you were great I swear we're just gonna have to do one more song until the end of the show so thank you to the tireless fabulous 413 team next week on the show we're gonna talk about Puerto Rican history in Holyoke we're gonna, we're gonna talk go to, the, to a couple mayoral candidates from Pittsfield we're gonna go to the Dakin Animal Shelter we'll talk to the other mayoral candidate from Greenfield that we didn't get to yet. We'll have Dean Sycon with his new book on. One more from Sierra Fragale, who's playing at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. I'm just going to tune down real quick. Best song. I do love that. Drop that D. <laughs> <laughs> We're good at things. I might, have to, I might have to steal that one. Yeah. It's such a downer. Nice. It counts. Nice. Headlines said the sun's turning red and I didn't go back to bed. See, it's the smoke from Nova Scotia and I want to get to know you better than
Yay!